0: how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep
1: moving forward to infinity and beyond some people without brains do an awful lot of talking don't they it's classified you're talking to me i could tell you but then i'd have to kill you
0: i can't lie. expecto patronum entertainment x
1: you never know what you're gonna get
0: For this episode, I chat with Brian Cloutis. Brian and I talk about his time at V Playhouse. We talk about Brian Cloutis' experiences and some key moments in time that defined his career, his life, and his life path. This is a fantastic conversation about perseverance and just following your true north. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did having the conversation with Brian Cloutis. Keep on keeping on. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on the phone is Brian Cloutis. Brian, thank you for talking to me today. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a really fun conversation. You have done quite a lot <laughs> in a short amount of time. And I'm excited to kind of see where that comes from for you and your ways of being and mental preparation and, and ways in which you've created so much art. So I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your theater dreams growing up in Alabama?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, from the, from the second I could walk, I was singing. So, you know, I grew up um My granny played the piano in church, and I always say that my first tour was the Revival Circuit in Alabama. So my granny played the piano, and from as early as I can remember, I was just always singing. Um, so I would say my early days were singing in church, and you know, I always wanted to be um, an actor from the very get-go. I had dreams of moving to New York, of being a Broadway star of winning Tony Awards, Um, and I just did theater my entire life growing up, you know, in high school and my community theater, and it was just the thing I did nonstop growing up. Um, But, you know, I was that little kid running around in ruby slippers, twirling batons in my backyard. I mean, (laughs) it was always a performance for me, you know?
0: Yeah. Was this fostered by the family, or was this something you were doing on your own?
1: it was really doing on my own. I mean, I do credit my grandmother a lot. Um, you know, she was, she was a singer, she played piano in church, um, and she always, you know, loved the arts, and she actually was an actor in high school, and she got a full scholarship um, to pursue a degree um, in acting at a college, but it was during a time when, you know, women in Alabama didn't really go to college. They were expected to get married, and, you know, be a stay at home mom. So it was interesting to see that my grandmother always had this dream of becoming an actor that she was not able to pursue, but she was really able to realize it through her little grandson, me. Um, you know, my mom was a single mom, she was a single working mom. So my grandmother was the one who took me to play rehearsal and, you know, sat in the back and watched and, you know, made my costumes and worked on lines with me. So I really give my granny so much credit for. Um, For getting me into this industry and really just supporting, you know, what me and my sister wanted to do 100%. But, you know, I was the only actor, you know, theatrical one in the family for sure.
0: What did you learn about work ethic from your grandmother? Um, I
1: mean, it's interesting. You know, I learned I would say my whole work ethic comes from my mom, my granny and my sister um, you know, me and my sister were both um, first-generation um, college graduates. Um, my granny, she, was, she led by love. Um, she wanted more than anything for her kids and her grandkids. She called them her babies to be happy. And she 100% um, of what we wanted to do. There was never a question of, oh, well, how are you going to make this a career? It was just always like Brian is happiest when he's on stage. Um, so I learned that you follow um, you follow your heart, you lead with joy, um, and you support people's dreams. And I always felt that support from um, my granny and my mom. She was a single, hardworking mother. Um, you know, she dropped out of high school. Um, she had two kids. She went back and got her GED, um, and she became a hairstylist. And uh, which was at the time um, in a really um, large national hair salon. And then from becoming a hairstylist, she became a manager, a regional manager, and then actually a regional director for the entire Southeast, all of this without, you know, having had a, a college education. And I'm saying like, we grew up like in a trailer in the sticks of Alabama, you know, so like my mom, everything we have, she just worked her butt off for, you know, so she was you know, really taking care of us financially. And my granny was taking care of us, you know, helping raise us while my mom was at work. And my sister, she was fiercely independent. Um, you know, she had this major dream of going to an Ivy League school. And from as, as far as I can remember, she always talked about she wanted to go to an Ivy League school. She wanted to get to Alabama. And lo and behold, she got into Dartmouth. And she's still to this day the only person from our high school to ever go to an Ivy League school, which is kind of crazy. Wow! So I definitely attribute <laughs> a lot of—I I know, right? I definitely attribute a lot of my ambition um, to my sister because she always just dreamed really big and she had really specific things that she wanted, and she just went for them. I mean, you know, I often say like, if I didn't have my sister, would I have, you know, went to a college in the Northeast? Would I have really? you know, gotten out of Alabama and seen the world. Um, so, I mean, it was kind of this amazing trio of my, my granny leading with love and joy, um, my mom being scrappy and hardworking and making it happen, and then my sister having this incredible ambition that really was larger than the plot of land we grew up on, you know?
0: Wow. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different avenues that I could go with it, and I'm so, I, I so want to get to this, this core of your upbringing and how that influenced your drive to do more, be more, have more, create more because you, you don't stop. <laughs> I know we talked a little bit before yeah. we started recording. We all have to stop now for a little bit or put it on pause, but right. you're always optimistic, especially. Well, I mean, I, yeah,
1: I think it's our, I think it. you have two choices in life, right? You can be optimistic. Um, And you can choose love or you can choose fear. Um, And I I mean, those are really our two two options. And no matter what happens, it's going to happen. You control what you can control and then you let everything else go. Um, I find I'm happier. I'm more centered. I'm more joyful when I'm focusing on the positive and focusing on hope rather than focusing on things I cannot control. You know, what's going on currently in the country is horrific. But... It is our current reality. We can accept it or we can um, not accept it. I'm accepting it and I'm finding, you know, the positive in it. And I'm trying to figure out how I can, um, you know, come out of this a stronger person and how I can become, you know, a, a better leader and, um, you know, a stronger theater maker and. Um, But then, you know, getting back to, like, my roots in Alabama, you know, I was raised by these three really strong um, Southern women. But, you know, I definitely dealt with a ton of, um, you know, negativity. I mean, it was a very small Southern town. You know, I was definitely this, like, flamboyant little kid in Alabama. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I would say every day of my school life, I was, you know, bullied and ridiculed. But... I, it, you know, I don't regret it. Um, I'm really big on not regretting anything um, and taking into account that it's all part of the journey. I do know that all of that really fueled me um, to get out. Um, but now I love, you know, I, mean, I love going back to the southeast. I mean, I wanted to get out of Alabama so bad because all I could associate with it was the negativity of, you know, how I felt going to school. Um, But now I've really embraced everything about the Southeast and I'm able to, to look at um, the positive and, um, you know, all of that that I experienced was rooted in, in fear. You know, those people who, people who make fun or bully, they're afraid, you know, they don't lead with love. They really lead with fear. Um, So it's all, you know, my entire past um, upbringing in Alabama has really informed the person, the artist that I am today.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point though, also seeing the positive and allowing it to to overpower the negative and the fear cuz you're absolutely right. I just I love what you're saying cuz you're right. It is it's your two choices are love versus fear. And then coming out of school and you know having that background it's empowered you. It hasn't put you in a powerless position i just love it i love this okay i want to talk about um new york city and following your heart really your decision to you know go up there and and perform but also the decision to leave and head down to sarinby was this a massive conversation was this a no-brainer a (laughs) no-duh or um what was that journey i mean
1: I will tell you, I'm pretty big on listening to my gut and following it. You know, even at my darkest times, I've always, I've always had this ability to really um, tune into. I call it that whisper. Um, and, you know, it's a whisper, then it becomes, like, a voice, and then it becomes, like, a scream, so I say you always want to listen to the whisper before your insides are screaming at you, Um, you know, and from (laughs) Alabama, you know, I went to Massachusetts, I got my undergrad degree from Amherst, so I was in the New England area for four years, and then I transitioned from New England to New York City, and I was there for, you know, almost four years, and I would say, like, the first year, I just loved it. The second year, I liked it. The third year, I didn't love it. And the fourth year, I was miserable. Um, and for me, it was really realizing that I just wasn't cut out to be a New Yorker. You know, I, I, I found it like very, um, it, you know, for so many people that I just found it isolating. I felt lonely. I didn't feel like myself. And that really began this major discovery of how important environment is to me as a person um, and also an artist. And I just got to this point to where I knew I had to make a change or I was going to go into some, you know, deep, dark depression. And I remember calling my sister one day and just saying, I feel so freaking stuck. You know, I'm working this retail job. I'm not auditioning anymore. And she said, just pack your bags and come home, for God's sakes. You know, and I was like, oh, (laughs) I guess I can just do that. Um, but right. the funny thing is, you know, right as I was having this thing, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to a couple more auditions and see what happens. And randomly an audition at Tokyo Disney for a, a tall um, male country singer came out. I was like, well, Lord, that's me to a T. And I went <laughs> in and I booked it immediately. And within a month, I was in Tokyo. So, you know, when I yes. when I booked that job, I packed all of my bags. I shipped them home and I was like, after Japan, I'm not going back to New York. I know that. And then that led me, um, that year in Japan led me to know and I wanted to go back to grad school and that I wanted to be in the Southeast near my family. So um, post-Japan, I I moved to University of South Carolina um, and got my MFA in acting there. And it's funny how, you know, all of that led me to Serenby. Um, had I not moved back to the Southeast for grad school, I would have never discovered Serenby. I was staying with my sister <clears throat> and her family who live outside of Atlanta and they had said, you know, Hey, come stay with us. this summer before grad school. We can all hang out. And they said, there's this new place called serum, but you've got to come check it out. It's like bizarre in the middle of nowhere, but it's so beautiful. And I went and visited. And i just got this really weird gut feeling that I was somehow connected to the place. Um, and meanwhile, I, I'd only been an actor. I'd never directed, I'd never produced, I'd never done any of that, you know? Um, but I knew I was interested in it. Um, and so I you know, visited Serenby. I got that weird gut feeling and um, went to grad school. And I kept thinking about Serenby. And I said, you know what? There's some reason I'm thinking about that place. I'm just going to drop them a line. And I literally went to you know, contact us at serenby.com on their website. And I shot them this email that was like, hey, I'm Brian. I'm an actor from New York that's moving back to the southeast for grad school. I know this sounds crazy, but I think I'm supposed to start a theater in your community. And they emailed me back, and I was like, whoa, I didn't expect that, one. And then they <laughs> said, well, come have, come have coffee with us. You know, they were really in the early developmental stages. Yeah. And I met with the powers that be there, and they said, well, you know, if you're really serious in this, put together a business proposal for us. And then also, there's no structure here to do theater in. So what would your um, answer to that be? And in that split moment, I said, oh, we'll just try it outside and see if it works. And I mean, that reply really defined my, you know, the past 11 years of my career. So I put together a business proposal after ordering a bunch of books on how to start a nonprofit theater company. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just following what others had done. So there was this sense of being just completely fearless. I wasn't afraid to mess up because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, So I always say sometimes too much training can really cripple you. Mm-hmm. There's something really freeing about not knowing what to do and just doing it and learning by doing. Um, and they, they approved the business proposal. So the first two years um, we produced um, during the summers while I was at grad school. So I go to grad school, and then during the summers I come to Serenby. Um, And, you know, I just started listening to what people were saying. I mean, I will tell you, my goal was never to be an outdoor site-specific theater producer. You know, I wanted this beautiful, you know, vintage theater on the square with a gorgeous marquee. You know, all lit up like that was what was in my head. <laughs> yeah. But very quickly, audiences naturally started saying, "Oh, it's theater under the stars, theater al fresco, theater and found spaces." So I just let the audience really define the mission um, of the company. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't my goal. I didn't. You know, I wasn't as a little kid thinking I want to be an outdoor site specific theater producer. It really just happened.
0: Of course. Now with the, I'm just curious with the books. Was there one that taught you the most or stood out in your mind in terms of starting a non nonprofit theater? Um, you know, I'll get you the list.
1: Everybody always asks that question. Um, there were like three or four books. And then there was one that was literally just like how to run a theater. And it was very, um, it was just very to the point, you know, because yeah. um, I'm not someone that loves a, a ton of research, you know, I I can get lost in all of that. So like, I'm a big fan of like very straight to the point, really blunt directions. And I remember that, I mean, I literally think it was how to run a theater and it was just very to the point of like, these are the the absolute nuts and bolts of what to do. Um, You know, specifically around a nonprofit theater. I mean, I didn't know how to put a board of directors together. I didn't know how to do any of that, you know, and it was literally just like X, Y, and Z. This is what you do.
0: Hmm. This first season that you did down there was that a like a shoestring budget? Were you just like yeah, scrap, scrap, scrapping it together, scraping it up, scraping it up seeing what we
1: could? Was come like, to- yes, I was. So we did uh, Jungle Book, John and Jan, the musical, and then Shakespeare's R and J. You know, the four person Joe Clarko adaptation. So all of the shows had like two to four people in them. I was directing them all. I was in them all. You know, I was, like, begging my friends to help do costumes. You know, I mean, it was, like, a, I mean, tiny. They gave me, in year one, gave me $15,000 to start the theater. And, I mean, like, I thought that was an exorbitant amount of money. You know, like, I was just, like, oh, my God. Like, I've literally won the lottery. You know, and then when I left Serenby, um, you know, the company was operating at a $2.5 million budget. So, it's really insane how... In those first years, you know, $15,000 can, it feels like so much. But then in year 10, I mean, $15,000 would, you know, it was such a small a small amount of, you know, what what you needed to operate. So it's interesting how, how things can really scale. But I will tell you that, you know, something I've always learned is to, no matter how much money you have, you always have to be scrappy, you know, tying back to my mom. And you cannot create above your means you know, like we couldn't do Titanic year one, we had to do that year nine, you know, so it's just really thinking about, you really have to crawl before you can run. And I think there's something to be said about, um, you know, having to operate with a very small budget, I think it really makes you be creative. And for me, from that year one get go, it just really made me focus on my environment, you know, so the type of work I do, it's really scalable. I mean, we can do things and, you know, a field with very little money or we can really blow it out with, you know, something truly spectacular. But I will tell you, the story always wins. And I harp on that a lot. You know, people talk a lot about the spectacle that I create. And I say it: the story always wins. Every show does not have spectacle, but some shows, I think, require that to tell the richest story.
0: Yes, yes. And in order to get to Titanic in year nine... Was that a plan you had back in year two, or was it each year you kind of figured out the next step? How how wide was your goal? Because I had read that you went from forty k to two million, you know, in a budget, and that's like a massive yeah. growth there in two years for a nonprofit theater in the southeast. And then yeah, so yeah,
1: it was actually ten years. It was forty. So our first year we had forty k, and then by year ten we were operating at two and a half million. So it was like a ten year period.
0: Okay, and what was that what was that plan for you? Was that one at a, one year at a time?
1: Yeah, I definitely was one year at a time. Um, I will tell you year four is the like I call it the breakout year because um, up until year four we had not done like a huge scale production. and in year four, uh, the stars aligned and it felt like the right time to do like a big musical um, and we did hair. That was really the game-changer show. Um, And we did it in a field. We popped up vintage scaffolding. And it was just a bunch of hippies wandering around in a field, in tents, smoking fake weed. You know, just having this really insane communal experience that felt like Woodstock. And that show, it just blew up. You know, we, we saw our audiences go from, like, you know, 50 to 100 a night to like 400 a night. And it, it literally almost happened overnight, you know? So I always say your best way to, to create buzz is to create an incredible product. You know, y- you can have all of the fancy stuff leading up to it, but if the show isn't amazing, people don't care. So I always say the show has, the number one thing is the show has to be amazing. And there was something unique about that show. Nobody in Atlanta had done anything like that in so long. And people just started freaking out, and everybody from Atlanta came and saw that show. So that experience really opened us up to not only being an outdoor theater, to really being an experiential theater. Um, So people started calling us immersive, experiential. And then that really opened us up to, you know, the years to come. And I look at the other markers, you know. Miss Saigon was our next major thing and then after that Titanic was our next you know you think of like the iconic Serenby shows that people still talk about but I did not in year two think I want to do Titanic in year four when we saw how cool this immersive thing was I started thinking how can we press it to the next level you know and when we did Miss Saigon I think it was year six People were like, "I was like, we're gonna land a helicopter during the like iconic helicopter scene," and people were like, "Bullshit! You'll never do it. It's never gonna happen." And when I hear that stuff, it just like fuels me. <laughs> so, so we we made it happen. You know, I found um uh a, randomly within an hour drive of Cerami, there was a an Army Aviation Heritage Foundation that specifically their mission was to restore and fly Huey helicopters flown in Vietnam. I mean very niche right there, you know, but lo and behold, there was my, you know, my outlet for making a helicopter land. And then after that, people just kept saying, like, how can how can this company ever top it? How can Brian top landing a helicopter? And I just thought, oh we'll just think a ship. You know what I mean and I just sort of said that stuff in jest. And then I really started to think like, oh, my God, what if we actually did a Titanic with an insanely huge cast and we we built this structure in a lake? You know, so it just it was like every couple of years I wanted to see how far we could we could push it and, you know, go bigger.
0: How how do you know? Again, I would assume this comes from the gut. When to, you know, push a point or let a point go, because theater is very collaborative, you know, and you knew to continue on with this helicopter quest. And yet, of course, there's one an hour away. <laughs> it's very niche. But how do you how do you follow how do you follow that gut in, I guess, you know, I guess in negotiating with the rest of a team to get a finished product? Yes, yeah, so
1: I say th- I you have to have your like non-negotiables, right? what are the things um, in the show that you will absolutely, that you have to have them to make the show happen? And although theater is a collaborative art form, I do like being in charge. And I will tell you that from the very beginning. Um, I do like to collaborate, but as a director and producer, um, I have the final say and I'm in charge. And I just say that going into it, you know, Uh, but I love everyone giving ideas. And when it comes to, these big ticket items of like getting them or negotiating it all, you you have to listen to people um, and you have to hear no before you hear um, a yes. And like, I'll, I'll use the helicopter as an example. You know, when I, I started calling them and emailing them and they just refused to talk to me. They were like, they were like, are you insane? We're going to land a helicopter every night for a month in a musical in a field. What? I mean, they just thought I was like, had lost my marbles, you know? Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm just going to drive over there and introduce them and Charlie. And so I drove over there and I was like, hey, y'all, I'm Brian. I was that guy. And I just, I just, I, I say it's like a romance novel, right? You have to make people fall in love with your vision. And whenever they say no, you just ask them why. You can't get upset. You can't um, act like they don't know what they're talking about. You just have to keep asking the questions why. And so, you know, when I went over there, part of them were like, oh, well, this this kid's got some balls. You know, like he's just driving over here and talking to like all of us like army dudes. Um, and I just told them I have this dream. I said, Miss Saigon is one of my favorite shows. I've always had this dream of doing it. And I have this awesome company that doesn't have a theater or doesn't have walls or a ceiling. And I think how incredible um, to show the climax of this story by landing an actual helicopter in a field. And the first thing they said is, oh, well, we don't have pilots trained to fly at night. And I said, well, what if we paid them to get that training? And he said, oh. And he said, also, we can't land it um, in a tight area. And I said, well, I have this really open field, and I would love for you to be my guest and come out and see the field and see if you think it's even a possibility. And I would love to treat you and anybody here to lunch if y'all come out. Like, I would just, you know, I really want to make this happen. I'm super passionate about it. Um, and then, and literally, this is what I did on the flip side. And I was like, I was also, just so you know, the New York Times is covering this. And that was a complete lie. I literally just said it <laughs> in the moment. But in my gut, I felt like this was New York Times worthy. And he went, oh. And I was like, yes, it'll be incredible press for you. And just think about all the fundraising opportunities that will come out of this for your organization. And lo and behold, the New York Times did cover it. But it, but at the time, I did not know that. But I firmly believed if we could pull this off, it would be New York Times worthy. Um. So then, you know, the rest is history. He came and visited. He saw the field. And he was like, oh, my gosh, this actually is big enough, you know. And he said, oh, well, you know, what if this becomes this really cool, like, community event for both organizations? Um, and then the cool thing is that, you know, all of these these Vietnam vets, they flew it every night. And it became this, like, sort of fight over, like, who was going to get to fly it every night. And their families would come before the show, and they would hang out together. And, oh. you know, the spouses to, to ride the helicopter every night. So it became this, like, major community-building event where... Two very um, different groups came together, and you had musical theater people, and you had Vietnam vets who, you know, became dear friends over creating this thing together. But you have to have your list of non-negotiables, and for me and Miss Saigon, the helicopter was one of them.
0: Yeah, you need the helicopter, but to have a real one. And I'm just curious, I'm just curious, a logistical question. Did any of the actors get on this helicopter? Because I was was, the actors, yeah,
1: they did not. Um, so we we staged it to where um, the helicopter landed, and you see, um, you see Chris and some soldiers like running behind this thing that looks like they're getting into the helicopter, and the helicopter would take off. Um, you actually can't start, you, you can't have a human within 200 feet of a moving helicopter because that's when like heads get chopped off and you yeah. know debris gets splunked to your face so we were able to land it within 200 feet of an actor an audience member but you're not allowed to put people in it and take them off. that's just like a whole different liability set right there we would have to turn the helicopter off and then restart it and that takes a ton of time you know and i mean That whole sequence is like, I don't know, 45 seconds, you know, bum, 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 bum. I mean, you got it, and it has to land and take off right on time. But for us, the thing we're really concerned about is the timing of it landing and then it taking off. I've got chills over my body thinking about it. Of like that, when the music swells, the helicopter has to take back off and go. So the helicopter never stopped the propeller. It slowed down to land, and then it got faster to go back up. But when I tell you, you, 200 feet away, you can feel that thing. Like, you feel thump, thump, thump. Like, you just felt it in your gut. And, like, all of the grass and everything in that field was just going crazy. And Kim's there, like, on her knees screaming and crying. I mean, it was just, like, the most visceral moment ever, you know?
0: Wow. <laughs> I feel like I'm there. <laughs> that's, I, I just the, went back. It was like, oh,
1: <laughs> I had a little, I just literally closed my eyes and went back there for a
0: second. That's so, it's just so beautiful. And you, and you're, the, the why, the simple question of why, to keep asking why, to understand someone's no or yes. How have you gotten better at asking questions just throughout this whole process now to having your own company?
1: Um, I am very blunt. Um, I am also kind, but I have no problem telling you exactly what I want and exactly what I need and exactly what team members need. I don't skirt around things. I'm just painfully blunt, and I'm unapologetic about the things that I need and unapologetic about feedback. Um, So a lot of actors that work with me will say, Brian is really sweet and he's so friendly, but boy, he can give you some direct notes. You know, like that's, that's what people would say about me, but I'm never, you can't, it's, I always say it's like the, the Anna Wintour method, you know, like she has this really awful reputation about being so cruel and so mean. But if you, if you listen to her interviews and, you know, I did her masterclass, um, she's very kind and she's actually very funny but she's very, very specific, and I think for people who are not specific, and I think for people who are afraid to ask for what they want, when they work with people um, who feel comfortable doing that, they're perceived as um, being a tyrant or being, you know, a bitch. Um, right. But I think I think you can do both. I think you can be specific, and I think you can. Um, you know, ask for um, excellence and ask for a high level of um, things to tell the story. But I think leading with kindness is kind of the perfect way to, to always get what you want. Um, so I think you have to be fearless. You have to ask for everything. And you have to have your non-negotiables. And that's even true in like everyday life. You know, I always try when I do these talks about you know, being a director and producer, like for people who are not a director and producer, I think it's important to have your non-negotiables. Like just on a personal level, like, you know, a new non-negotiable for me is that before I do anything in the morning, I have coffee and I meditate and I do not get on my phone. It is a non-negotiable and I will not have a meeting or will not talk to a person, will not go on social media until I have my cup of coffee, until I meditate because it makes me happy and it makes me grounded. So I think there are, you have to have your non-negotiables. And then we could go off into a a side spin about this, but I think it's also very important to have structure because without a structure, I think we're just kind of like flailing around, you know? So I think non-negotiables and structuring things are very important really for creating anything.
0: What is your structure? At least for morning, you know, your morning rituals. How long are you meditating for?
1: Um, so I don't meditate a long, long time. Um, I find that um, you don't want unrealistic um, goals. So I always say, um, you know, I'm reading a book right now, which I'm obsessed with called Atomic Habits, and it's talking about how incremental change can lead to large change. So I always say, start small. Um, So I'm a morning-ish person. You know, I like to get eight hours sleep. I will tell you that I need seven to eight hours sleep every night or I don't feel good. It's the way my body functions. Um, So I typically get up around 7 a.m. And then I use that first hour to ease into the day. I'll make my coffee. Um, I make my bed immediately in the morning. So I think there's something to be said about, um, you know, keeping a tidy space. So I start my coffee. I make my bed. And then I like being outdoors, you know, unless it's freezing. So I will typically go outside and meditate for anywhere from like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, And that's really all I need. You know, and I do a guided meditation. So I have a couple of apps that guide you on those meditations. I do that guided meditation. Excuse me. I finish my coffee. And then I'll kind of figure out like, hey, am am I in a good space right now to like kind of start my day? Um, and then I'll start office hours, you know, I create my own office hours. So like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, by around eight 30 or nine, I'm going to get on email and I'm going to, I'm going to shut that email off by five o'clock, you know, and this is in the new normal of not being in rehearsal. You know, if I'm in rehearsal at night, I kind of structure that a little bit differently. Um, and also like I cook all my own meals now clearly. Um, and then I'm really, I'm really into health and fitness, you know, in the past seven months, I've I've transformed my body, and that's literally from working out and eating well. So that is something very important to me as well. Um, I really try to limit my time on social media. Um, I limit my time on TV. I will not watch the TV until the TV. Oh my god, I sound so old. I will not watch the TV. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't watch TV um, until the evening. Like I'll cook dinner. I'll be like, sure. hey. Here's my hour, two hours to you know watch my Netflix show, unless I make a decision to like binge watch something. Like I wake up and like you know what, today is my Saturday. I'm gonna today is my day to binge watch um, Tiger King. You know it's like sure. I'm always gonna be very mindful and intentional about what I'm doing. Um, and then, like, I know, like, I have one cheat meal a week, and that's a consistent day in the week, and I look forward to it, and my body looks forward to it. Um, so that's kind of the rough you know, the rough schedule of the day. I do think in this time of, you know, a lot of us have new schedules and we have so much free time. I think it's important to, to structure all of that. You know, I think it's not enough to say, oh, I'm going to meditate today or, oh, I'm going to work out today. It's like, I know I'm going to be on emails till 5 o'clock then i'm going to eat a snack and then i'm going to work out at 6. You know, you ha- and i i write things down. You know, i'm a big list person. So i have like dry eraser boards, i have, you know, handwritten lists, i have a work list, i have a personal list because i think there's something important to be said about writing everything down and having it in your eyeballs to look at. So you're remi- like i'm looking at my calendar right now. What it's, it's Thursday. Um, Thursday is my day for calls, so I only accept calls on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I know that if I'm going to do something like this podcast, it's going to be on a Tuesday or Thursday, and that's a non-negotiable for me, because if I take calls all throughout the week, it kind of, like, messes up my my overall, like, you know, um, uh, just flow, and then today's Thursday, I'm working out my chest and back, tomorrow's Friday, I'm going to cook a new recipe every Friday, um, also, I get to watch Making the Cut, my new favorite show on Prime, uh, Prime Amazon, <laughs> because it comes out on Fridays. So I'm just right. really intentional. Of, like, I've just written down of like, these are things that I'm doing today and things I have to look forward to um, in the future.
0: I I love this this breakdown of your schedule because it you're bringing up a great but To create your own structure, especially like without bringing up the whole pandemic and having a whole conversation about that, to have your own structure when nothing's going wrong. It helps when things do, quote unquote, go wrong or appear to be going wrong because you are keeping your true north. You, your compass is still pointing in the direction you want to head in. And I love that. You know what you're saying about your, yeah. your specific schedule.
1: Yeah, you're in charge of your life. And if you think that you're not, then you need to figure out how to be in charge of your life. There will always be circumstances we cannot control. But the one thing you can control is choosing joy and doing something, you know, get I mean, literally get out of bed, make your bed, meditate like just one step in front of the other. I think it's easy to get um, stuck, um, especially during this time, Um, you know, and I'll, I'll be very honest, like a year ago, almost a year ago to this day, I reached a point in my life where I felt very stuck. And that is when I made the decision, you know, to leave Cereby, this company I had worked for 10 years on and felt like something that I would be a part of forever. But I woke up one day and felt very stuck and knew that it was time to leave. And it was it was a very hard, very scary decision. But I knew in my gut serenby Playhouse, the company that had given me a career, and that had been my livelihood for 10 years, it was holding me back. And it was really hard to admit that and really hard to leave. But I always say, why would you ever want to have regret? You know, there there's no regret in moving forward. But there's regret in staying and wondering what if, you know,
0: what? Yes, I. Yes, yes, yes. To answer that, yes. What was that morning like for you when you woke up and you felt stuck or you realized it was time to go? Was this another whisper or a scream?
1: It, it was kind of a scream when I. Made the decision. <laughs> I mean, I would say it had been whispering for. Um, it had been whispering for probably honestly two years. Um, I will tell you, you know, um, so midway through, um, you know, Serenby Playhouse uh, tenure or my tenure there as the founder, I, I started Brian Cotta's Experiences. Um, and that really came up very organically. You know, a community reached out and said, hey, you've heard about this thing you're doing Serenby. Would you ever take that model somewhere else? And I was like, of course, you know. So that conversation led to, you know, my first client outside of Serenby. And then, you know, for the longest time, I was trying to balance both. And, you know, um, CRMV was really like my, my main job. And then the BCE stuff was just kind of like side gravy when I could fit something else in. And then, you know, last year in 2019, all of a sudden, it just exploded. And I had clients in nine different states. And I was just, first of all, I was like, well, how did this happen? You know, and this was all just from people emailing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't pursuing any of these. People would just email and say, hey, we heard you do this thing. Would you come to our ski resort and do a musical? And I was like, well, sure. I've, I've got a week here. You know what I mean? And so I just all of a sudden realized, oh my God, there's, how do I do both? You know, so I kind of went into this panic and I was, you know, I was I wasn't on a schedule. I was working literally 24 hours a day. I would go to bed with my phone in my hand and wake up with it in my hand. I wasn't centered. I wasn't grounded. I was just floundering, you know? And I tried to do that for a few months. And it came to a head a year ago when I was directing Ragtime and Serenby and directing Mama Mia in Ohio at the exact same time. And in my head, I thought this made sense. So I was, I'm not kidding you, flying back and forth every week. The choreographer would set something in one venue, and then we would flip-flop. And I was going back and forth for this, like, three-week rehearsal period. And I i found myself, and I'm really big on listening to your body, because I think your body interprets things physically before your mind can. I started listening to how my body felt, and every time I would go to Serenby, I felt my chest clench, and I felt like I could not breathe, and then I would go to Ohio, and I felt so joyful, I felt released, and I would dread every single email I got about Serenby, I would dread every single thing about mm. Meanwhile. I just wanted to do Mama Mia in Ohio so bad, um, and I literally woke up one day in Ohio, and I just felt, you know what? I'm not eating. I feel like I can't breathe. I feel like it felt like a depression. You know, it just I just felt helpless, and I felt like I had zero control in my life. And I woke up, and I literally said, you know what? I'm going to go sit on this park bench in Ohio, in this little tiny town, Chillicothe, Ohio. And I'm going to sit there and really think about what my next step is. You know, because I knew I had to make one because I just felt completely stuck. And I sat on that park bench and I said, you know what? I said, what is the scariest thing I can think of right now? And I said, leaving Serenby Playhouse, a company I have built for almost 11 years now. And I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's the scariest thing I can think of doing. And that day I made the decision. And then it was, you know, months and months of planning. But I, I made the decision that day, 428, it's coming up soon, to, to do something new with my life. And that also meant selling my dream house that I had worked my entire life for, um, and really downsizing to put everything into, um, you know, BCE and to bring this idea of, you know, art, nature, and community to, to different communities all over the country. Um, and it was honestly the best decision I've ever made in my life. And I will tell you, a year after, it took a year to get to this really um, joyful, grounded place, I'm, I'm so happy I did it, you know, but it doesn't happen overnight. But I do say the first step is having having the nerve to make a bold choice that your insides are telling you to do.
0: And to trust it. Because you have to you, trust it. You have a lot of trust of yourself to make these bold yeah, decisions I mean, and they work out. It all works out. What, when here's the thing,
1: you can't you can't live in a what if you have to listen and you have to go because guess what? Our path, it just goes everywhere. I mean, we might take a left turn. We might take a U turn. You, you can't think about what the end goal is. You have to think about what is in the right now. And if in the right now you're, and look, we all look, we have days where we don't like what we do, but like, you know, the difference, like when you're at your core, Not happy doing what you're doing. I mean, who knows? Like 10 years from now, I may not even do theater. You know, I might be in Indonesia as a mindful teacher. I mean, who knows? You just don't know, you know? So when people ask me about my long term goals, I really push back because I'm not goal driven anymore. I'm process driven now. And the goals come out of the changes I make in my life and what I do. I'm not working towards X, Y, and Z. I'm working on the now and seeing how everything that comes into my life is positive energy, and I'm letting go of everything that is negative energy. And that includes jobs. That includes possessions. That includes people. You know, I'm a big proponent of letting people go out of your life, that do not bring you joy anymore. You have to know when to allow people to leave because we're constantly evolving. And someone that you was your best friend 10 years ago is a different human now and you're not meant to be together anymore. So I say there's nothing wrong with letting people go. If they're not making you happy and you don't smile when you think about them, they are not meant to be in your life
0: hmm that's a wonderful wonderful sentiment i think many people can grow from hearing that (laughs) because we have so many sorry
1: so many and yeah it's like you know there i think we we look at things as failures in life of leaving a company or leaving a relationship they're not failures they're they're allowing yourself to be the best current version of yourself who we are now is not who we were 10 years ago we're constantly evolving and we're constantly becoming um you know the most refined and joyful i mean hopefully the joyful version of yourself and one thing i do want to say it quick is that something i have learned um we talk about you know change and knowing when to move on is you have to change your relationship with discomfort i welcome discomfort now Because it is my body telling me I need to make a change. So rather than fearing anxiety and fearing discomfort, we have to embrace those feelings and know that that is the need for something to shift in our lives. So changing your relationship with discomfort is, I think, something that will literally change your life.
0: Has that gotten easier for you? more recently since sarin b since leaving sarin the discomfort the unknown
1: it has um i will tell you i wake up every morning very joyful um i wake up embracing the not knowing um and you know i mean without getting into a ton of it i mean it it was heartbreaking you know i mean things ended a little like I wanted them to end and I had a lot of hurt feelings um and I think people on both ends had tons of hurt feelings um but at the end of the day I had to focus on my personal joy and it's interesting because people who've worked with me this past year through BCE and have worked with me at Serenity the past few years they they come up to me all the time and say i don't know what's different about you but there is something very different you are so much more connected i feel so much more in line with your with your vision and i feel like you're just 100 percent present so it's like not only am i feeling these changes but you know actors are seeing these changes and they're seeing me more connected um and hopefully creating you know richer art um but yes, I feel I feel like a different human than I did a year ago. I mean, honestly, I mean, physically, I'm in different shape. Mentally, I'm in different shape. And spiritually, I'm in very different shape. And look, we all have bad days and good days. Like some days I'm like, yes, I'm here. I'm present. Hallelujah. And then some days I'm like, oof, today's a little bit of a struggle. But I think acknowledging that and saying it out loud is important. You know, don't lie to yourself because guess what? That ain't going to help. You know, just always be Mm. really honest and really be kind to yourself, you know? And I do think it's in this day where we live on social media and like, oh, we've just always got to be so joyful. You know, if I'm not having a joyful day, I'm probably, I mean, hopefully I am, but you know, I'm not going to lie about it and post on social media, but I'm also not going to post on social like hey I'm having a sad day everybody give me attention you know that's just not my style anymore
0: you know (laughs) yeah
1: some people thrive off that you know but also misery attracts misery you know I'm not gonna have people in my I I try to follow people on social who are mindful and who inspire me and who bring me joy you know I don't I don't want to talk about politics on social media I don't want to talk about misery on social media I want to if I'm going to go on social media, I want it to bring me joy and make me laugh or make me more buoyant. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, yes, yes, and the best part about it is that it's cultivated, so you don't have to. You don't have to see all of that on there, and you can always just go read the news.
1: That's yes. the best part. And about,
0: here's the thing: the
1: cultivate the life you want. I don't think you have to know all the answers, and you don't have to be working towards a specific goal, but every day, get up and cultivate what makes you happy, and your goals will arise out of that cultivation. I truly believe that.
0: Brian, thank you for sharing all of this today. I really appreciate oh you doing this this deep dive.
1: Thank you. And it's so good to connect with you finally.
0: I know. It's so. It's so. It's so. It's so timely. It's just. It's funny how things work out. I uh, as we as we wrap up here. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: I said we were meant to talk today. It was like perfect timing for us.
0: It really was. It really was. Uh, As we wrap up, curious. If you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind?
1: I mean, it would probably be "How you doing? <laughs> <I> mean Honestly, <laughs> with like an exclamation point, because I think that I think my goal is to make people smile and laugh, and I think whenever you see "How you doing? um, you can't help but smile. It's really just kind of the you know I say it all the times. So I think it'd be like "How you during? because I think the thing we always have to be asking ourselves is how are we doing. And if we're not asking ourselves how we're doing with with a smile and with humility and with some humor, I think we're really ignoring all that life has to offer us. So ask yourself, how are you doing? And listen Mm. to the answers. Um, Don't ignore them and don't lie to yourself because, you know, you know, when you're lying, listen to yourself and take one step at a time. Um, my meditation this morning said, today is the best day of my life. And if you wake up every morning and say, how am I doing today? And if you say, today is going to be the best day of my life, um, hopefully it will be.
0: There's a greater chance that it will be, especially with the attitude. It sure will. Yes,
1: absolutely.
0: And just a logistical question. Durin, D-U-R-I-N apostrophe. Correct. Okay.
1: How? Yeah. It's Y A. How? Y A. Durin.
0: Perfect. Is there anything else? I, you... <laughs> I love this. I just love it. I love this conversation. Thank you for being so open to all oh of these.
1: God, thank you for reaching out, and Listen I can't wait me. till we can you know grab a coffee in person and maybe we can we can create something together one day. So
0: that would be that would be very. Very exciting. uh, Is there anything else you want to add before we we end it here?
1: I don't think so. I'm just really grateful um, for you, and I'm grateful for our time together. And, you know, everyone who's listening, um, take care of yourself, um, lead with kindness, lead with joy, and um, create the life right now that you've always wanted.
0: I love it. I love it. I love this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls.